the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Thank you for joining us for your weekly equestrian podcast fix. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor at Horse and Hound, melting a little bit this week, it has to be said, in the sunshine. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Laura Collett about the ponies and horses who made her into the rider she is now and what she looks for when choosing an eventer. As far as horses are concerned, you don't have to have the most talented horse in the world, but they've got to have a heart and they've got to want to do it. We'll also be catching up on the latest news, what to do if you get stuck on the motorway with a horse on board, developments in resumption of sport in the face of COVID-19, and what happened at this week's British Show Jumping National Championships. Finally, vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine tells us what happens when you have a horse put down and how to prepare ahead to make this difficult time run smoothly. I think clients really need to know what to expect because one day it's going to happen to you. More from Ricky later on that. In the meantime, throw open the windows, turn on the fan and let's get started. Our guest this week is one of Britain's most popular event riders. She's the winner of nine under 21 medals and has ridden at three senior European championships, as well as finishing in the top 10 at badminton and second in the five star at Le Moulin. She is, of course, Laura Collett. Laura, we have to kick off by talking about a horse who's recently made his comeback. We know that everyone's horses have had a quieter time this spring with coronavirus, but Mr Bass has actually been off since Babington last year due to an injury, but he returned to competition with a great run in the Advanced Intermediate at Bicton last month. Tell us, how did he feel? Oh, it was amazing to finally have him back. Um, it seemed like the longest time ever since um, Babington last year. Um, but to have him back and feeling just as good as ever was um, just the best feeling and it was amazing and um, he was delighted to be back out as I as I thought he would be um, and it was like he'd never been away um, so yeah it was a, a very exciting day. That's so good to hear and tell us a little bit about his sort of recovery in path since Babington last year. How long has he been back in work and how have you been sort of building him back up to coming back to the competitions? He's been back, gosh, uh, back in work a long time now. Um, he did his recoveries, um, box rest and walking and then started hacking and has just been building up slowly. Um, and to be honest, as much as it kind of pains me to say, going into lockdown because of coronavirus was the best thing for him because I was due to start cantering him. Um, I'd actually planned to run him originally at Bicton back in April. Um, so he was due to start cantering um, just as everything started to kick off. And it just meant he had an extra sort of six weeks before I, I galloped him again, which um, with any injury is always, you know, time time's the greatest healer. So um, it kind of gave him an extra six weeks recovery and um, he's he hasn't taken a step back since, um, you know, since he, he started his rehab, which has been um, touch wood all gone, all gone to plan. And um, yeah, it's been, you know, a, a long old road, but um, it's worth it when they're a horse like Mr Bass. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely worth doing doing all that work and giving them the time when they're a horse as good as that. And and tell us, Laura, what are your plans for him now? Are you looking at any sort of end of season targets? Well, I, I guess in my head, um, in an ideal world, plan A would be Poe for the five star. Um, but it's obviously slightly dependent on getting the runs into him. Um, and if it, as long as he feels 
fit and well and and ready which judging by what he did at Bicton he's he's more than you know ready he's back on track and um hopefully all goes to plan and he can go to Poe at the end of the year Mm, that would be lovely to see him there and and fingers crossed for Poe that they can run the only five star that would be running in 2020 and Laura you've got a strong team of horses in your yard sort of at those upper levels sort of from intermediate level and above just give us a a quick rundown of what other horses we should be looking out for uh, competing in those exciting competitions and and so on um yeah like really really lucky um to have some super horses in the yard and all um all sort of up and coming as well um so London 52 um the aim would hopefully be to take him to Poe as well and to have Mr Bass and London 52 a five stars kind of a dream because they've I've had them right from the beginning and um they're they're both superstars so that would be really exciting um and then De Capo um would be be down um next down on the list and he's done four star long at Buckalow last year so um he'll be at four star and then hopefully make the step up to five star um probably at the beginning of next year hopefully if all, all goes to plan um and then uh there's a little bit of a gap to the, to the next one which would be the seven-year-old moonlight charmer so um yeah some some really exciting young horses coming through Mm, That's so good to hear. Now, Laura, I think we're going to dial the clock back a little bit now and talk about the early stages of your career. I feel a little bit like your your growing up in the sport has been kind of alongside my growing up at Horse and Hound, to be honest, because I remember meeting you for the first time at Western Park in 2004 when you won the Junior One Star. It was my first time reporting at a three-day event, and I think it was your first time riding at one, and you were riding the wonderful Walnut. What are your memories of that event and of that special horse? Yeah, it was was my first um, first three day event, and I just feel really lucky that um, that was the last long format. So I scraped in and managed to do a long format before it it all changed. So um, that was really cool to be able to have done that. Um, and on a horse like Walnut, he was the the dream schoolmaster. Um, he was basically an over oversized pony um that as long as you kicked a lot and and held the right rein because he used to hang so bad on the right rein so if you didn't hold the right rein he'd just sort of do a left circle but um yeah he was phenomenal um there was a quite a bit of pressure because he'd you know he was so well known he he'd done so many riders um on the way up and um he was he's always been a superstar in the pony club in the Heathrow pony club and the JRN championship so um to to take on the ride on him was an amazing experience and um to win at my first 3 day was was pretty special Mm, great to hear that and then of course you became closely associated with Noble Springbok who was a really super pony who you piloted to individual bronze and team gold at the Pony Euros in 2005 how did you come to find and ride him and what was he like um actually uh he was advertised in horse and hound um in sort of a job lot from the noble people from Kelly Lyons um there was just one one line that said 14 to five-year-old potential event pony um i sort of made the decision that i wanted to move away from showing um and do something a bit more exciting um i wasn't sure if i wanted to show jump or event so um we went he was actually the first pony we went to see um and i fell in love with him and mum said well we can't buy the first one we go and see because we don't really know what we're looking for but i was quite stubborn and i'd sold i'd always had a pony that was my own that um, I'd made the decision to sell to be able to buy my next sort of project and 
I yeah was very stubborn and said, well, it's my money, so I'm going to buy what I want. And luckily I did. And he he was just a freak of nature, really. He took to it like a duck to water. I think I did a year um, a year at Pony Club on him, um, went to the Pony Club Championships, and then he went to Horse of the Year show as a 15-hand worker and then started pony trials. Unfortunately, he was injured in 2004 at Western Park in the Pony Trial in the spring, but then came back and was phenomenal in 2005 and was, um, don't think he was ever out of the top three, which ended with the gold and bronze at the Europeans, which was beyond my wildest dreams. I never thought it was possible. I still haven't got a clue what I was doing. And um, he, he was just, you know, one in a million, really. Mm, and he went on to be successful with a couple of other riders as well. And obviously you set him up for that experience and he sort of set you up, didn't he, in terms of then being able to, to move on and buy some young horses for the next stage of your career? Yeah, he. Um, I I never wanted to sell him. Um, obviously when you're a kid at that age and he was, you know, my pony of a lifetime and I still to this day said he... I'd probably, if I could ever choose any any horse or pony to jump around badminton on, I would choose him because he was so, you know, he was so scopy and honest, and um, he was like riding a horse, really, not a pony. Um, but Yogi Breisner said, look, he he can set you up for life, and you sell him, and uh, you can buy four or five horses, young horses, one of which might take you to badminton, and. He was right because one of the ones that I bought from Selling Spring was Ray F, who then took me to my first badminton. So Spring, the whole story around Spring was basically a bit of a fairy tale, really. Mm, and we're going to come on to Rayev, but I want to just squeeze one there in between before we get to him, which is Fernhill Socks, because a year after that Pony Europeans, you were at Tweezledown, the year that they ran the senior long format two-star. You were just 16. Uh, you were the youngest winner of a senior two-star three-day event at the time. How was it going to that competition and, and, and moving up to compete against the grown-ups at quite a grown-up level of competition? Yeah, um, I I just think I was super lucky because I, I ran socks um alongside spring um in 2005 and he ended up winning the the one star at western um at the end of 2005 so it wasn't like a new partnership um i knew him and trusted him and um i guess at that age you're a little bit naive and um didn't really realize that it was much of a step up and whatever i asked of socks he would just always deliver so you know, didn't really have very many high expectations. It was just about trying to get selected for the junior Europeans. And um, yeah, he just went out and did his thing and and was the winner by quite a big margin, I think. But that was just sort of what Sox did. And um, he was he was a funny horse because he wasn't naturally very talented, but he had the biggest heart and um, all he wanted to do was do his best for me. And that kind of taught me an awful lot as far as horses are concerned and um, you don't have to have the most talented horse in the world but they've got to have a heart and they've got to want to do it. And of course Fernhill Sox went on to be junior European champion that year and then going back to Rayef he was junior European champion and then young rider European champion the following year. What are your memories of those two championships with Rayef who is definitely a very talented horse? They couldn't sort of be more opposite really um, in the respect that 
Rayef was probably had all the talent in the world, um, but wasn't as quite as sort of genuine and, and as forthcoming with his talent as as Socks was. But um, he taught me about the highs and lows. One minute he was winning by you know by a mile and showing everyone what he was made of, and then the next he could be either blowing up in the dressage or making a mistake cross country or having show jumps down. So. Um, you never knew what you were going to get with him, um, but on his day he was phenomenal and luckily he um, decided that he quite liked showing off at the Europeans and being the centre of attention, so um, he pulled it out of the bag at, at the junior and young rider Europeans, which um, was really special because in 2008, so my first year in young riders, I was at final training with Fernhill Socks and got told that actually they'd had they'd made a mistake and I actually wasn't qualified because he'd missed some events due to an injury so to to be there thinking I was about you know about to leave and go to the Europeans and on the back of winning double gold at the two junior Europeans before I'd, I you know made it my aim to win young rider Europeans and then to have that taken away from me that chance taken away was heartbreaking so the following year in 2009 with Ray F I I piled an awful lot of pressure on myself to try and prove a point that you know I'd wanted to win that gold the year before and I almost had to wait two years for it so to be able to pull that off was um, under the the amount of pressure that I put on myself was was amazing really and and Ray he sort of did it the hard way um, made a mistake in his dressage but luckily he was you know, still still good enough to lead the dressage. And then I had a fence down, show jumping, but luckily by that stage I, I had a fence in hand and won by quite a small margin. But it sort of, yeah, it was very different to the um, junior Europeans where everything had gone smoothly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting things about our sport is that there are so many different, different roads to roam at a competition. You know, you can start from the front, you can come from a lower position to win and there are so many different different variations and different pressures in those different situations and just to round out your under 21 career you went to a final young rider Europeans in 2010 with Fernhall Crystal and were a very solid team member there with a the team gold and he's not a horse that I really feel like I know much about tell me about him um yeah he was sort of one of those horses um that unfortunately injury sort of stopped him from getting to where he probably should have done. Um, he was a super horse. He'd done a little bit in Ireland at Carol G's before um, Philip Walker bought him. And then he, I think he did Blenheim 8, 9-year-old CIC 3-star. Um, and then unfortunately got quite a bad injury and we tried to get him back, but he did um, a couple of events and then broke again. Um, and, and that was, it was a career-ending injury. So yeah, it was it was a, it was sad that he couldn't, um, fulfil all his potential really. Mm, and just hearing you talk about that it feels like in the sort of six seven eight years of your under 21 career you ran the whole sort of gamut of the eventing emotions you know when I'm sitting here looking at your FEI record as I was doing preparing for this podcast you see all those ones those gold medals the medals every year and you don't really see the heartache that goes on behind them because just talking to you there you know you experienced having to you know sell horses to to make a living and, and pick up the next horse you experienced injuries you experienced quality 
qualification problems where you thought you were qualified and you weren't and you know sort of all those challenges that event riders have came to you came to you early in among all that success and when you look back at that time how do you think it sort of prepared you for for your senior career and, and for being a professional in the horse world um I, I'm really actually grateful now that it happened when it did because I think sometimes you you can get lulled into a false sense of security going through junior and young rider days with you know a couple of horses that and nothing going wrong and then you get into the big wide world and things start to happen and um I think because because it sort of happened whilst I was being successful it it made me realize that you've got to take the good with the bad and the kind of low days are made better by you know winning a gold medal and and it makes it all worthwhile you know the heartache that you go through but it's definitely made it easier to to cope with with things going wrong because it is part and parcel of eventing and and life really so um learning at a young age just means that you're you're used to it um like i said it's it makes the good days even better hmm and I feel like we need a whole separate podcast to talk about your senior career because there's there's so much there that, you know, we could pick through horse by horse and event event by event. But I was just going to pick out two things to talk about, sort of a low and a high in your senior career since leaving Young Riders. And the first is another of those things that a lot of riders have to deal with in terms of having an injury to yourself rather than to horses, because you did have a very serious fall eventing in July 2013. You were in an induced coma for several days and had all sorts of injuries. How did you sort of cope with that and come back from it I always say I was very lucky in the respect that I don't remember anything from that day um so when I came round from my coma I didn't have a clue what had happened and I actually just was sure that I'd had a, a full cross-country schooling and had just arrived at hospital and um I think I the first thing I said was uh, so which one did I fall off um at Boomerang because we live very close to Boomerang Cross Country schooling ground so we would go there quite a lot and everyone sort of looked at me a bit strange because clearly I had no idea what was going on um, but I think that was the biggest thing that that helped me really because I had no recollection of, of what had happened and by the time I woke up I was they had my pain meds under control so I was never in any any real pain um, and right from the second I woke up, all I wanted to do was get back on a horse, which a lot of people were questioning, which kind of made me more determined to prove people wrong because there was a lot of talk. Would I get back on? Would I want to compete again? And um, I thought they were all ridiculous ever even questioning that. Um, and the first day I came out of hospital, the very first thing I did was get on RAF, um, even though I had quite a few broken bones and things. But all I wanted to do was was ride around the school. I was only allowed to walk because I had lots of fractures and, and things like that. Um, but it was something that I needed to do to prove to myself and to everyone else that that's that's what I wanted to do. Um, and right from then it was, I never looked back and I counted down the days. I, I had six weeks where uh, I had a six week ban, um, went back and got signed back on and was at the next competition that I was possible that was possible to go to um but I was very fortunate the whole way along I had an amazing team of people behind me um making sure all the horses were ready for me as soon as I was ready um and supporting me along the way even though you know it was really difficult for for my mum um and my friends and everybody to 
you know, I always say they went through the worst part because they saw what I went through whilst I was clearly completely out of it in a coma. Um, they were the ones that had to suffer, not me. So um, I put them through hell and back. But for me, it was, you know, it was just another day, another day to get back on a horse and, and carry on like nothing had happened. So I was, you know, very fortunate that I didn't have any, um, you know, any brain injury or anything like that, that that stopped me from being able to to just get back on and carry on like nothing had happened. Hmm. Amazing to hear that, that, you know, in a way you feel lucky that you don't remember anything. So there's no sort of confidence issue there. You were left with some damage to the sight in your right eye, which which is still present, isn't it? And how do you sort of cope with that? Yeah, uh, it's it was difficult to start with. Um, It was difficult because I was first told when when I first realised that I couldn't see out of my right eye that um, it was something that would come back and it would settle. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I went back for another scan and they realised that actually it was totally damaged and it wouldn't, the site would never come back. So that was quite hard to take um, to start with. But then it was amazing how quickly um, I adapted uh, to, to it. And now, you know, there are certain things that slightly irritate it um, which is why I wear the glasses cross country but apart from that it's you know it's what I'm used to now and probably if I got the site back it would take me time to get reprogrammed back into being able to see out of two eyes but if that's the worst thing that happened to me then you know I can deal with that and um, there are an awful lot of people worse off than me so you just get back on and, and carry on like like normal. Mm, it's amazing how the brain can sort of reprogram itself to, to deal with something like that. And finally, Laura, we're going to finish on a high. I want to talk about Mr. Bass again, just to come back round in a circle. Your second place at Le Moulin in 2018 with him is your best five-star result to date. Just tell us about that weekend and, and what it was like to, to get that special result with a special horse. Uh, well, he's always been, I don't think I've ever tried to hide the fact that he's like my best friend. Um, he's such a character and Having had him since he was four years old and, and sort of barely broken in, um, he's we've done an awful lot together and he's a horse that he's never owed me anything um, and he just loves the challenge and the more you ask of him, the more he gives and um, he, he wants it just as much as I do, which is why we kind of have such a good partnership. He's always been um, known for sort of you know, being the king of finishing on his dressage score and to be the only horse out of that field of five-star horses to finish on his dressage score um, was pretty phenomenal, really. And, you know, he is an exceptional horse and he made it feel like a pre-novice and, you know, it was a tough cross-country and probably one of the biggest show-jumping rounds I've ever walked. And he came out and he just tries. He always tries. He never... You never have a day where he has an off day. He's always got a smile on his face. And, you know, he, for me, he he deserved to win that. But coming second was, was like winning for him. Um, he couldn't have done any more. Um, and it was just the most amazing week. And he is, yeah, he, he is genuinely a, a freak of nature. I feel very fortunate that in, in my lifetime, I've had Noble Springbok and Mr. Bass, who both, you know, they are so special and I'll probably never ride another one like it. Mm, lovely to hear that and we're so looking forward to seeing Mr Bass at some bigger events. Fingers crossed that, that you can get him to Poe later in the year and that event is able to run. 
Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been great to talk to you and go back through some of those old memories. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm here today with two members of Horse and Hounds news team. Firstly, our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hello, Lucy. What's been happening with you? Hi, Pippa. Um, I've had a few days off, which has been nice. Um, and I'm back sort of dealing with the heat and things. I've been, I've been riding a little bit when it's cooler in the evenings and probably <laughs> not a lot of horse news to report, but we had an apple tree um, gone a bit bonkers this year and the weight of the apples have broken off one of the branches, which my mare is absolutely thrilled with, I think, because uh, so, so quite a lot of the horses up our lane, we've probably got enough apples to feed at least 300 horses, so uh, she's very pleased with this. <laughs> I feel like there's a bit of an electric fence possible situation there to keep her away <laughs> from the apples when, when not required. The, the horse I share with my mum pushed over a bit of fence in, uh, in, in the field at the bottom of my parents' garden last week, so we had to, had to get a man to fix the fence and uh, put up electric fence while the post was setting in concrete. So yeah, horse, horses fencing, electric fence, horses is wanting to be where they're not meant to be. It's always a theme, isn't it? I'm also joined today by Becky Murray, our news writer. How's it going with you, Becky? Good, thank you. Um, I've just returned from a family weekend away at Loch Lomond, so it's quiet for me on the horsey front this weekend. But you were competing at dressage this weekend, weren't you, Pippa? I was, yeah. On Sunday, my mum and I went out to our first competition since March, um, just an unaffiliated dressage show. It was extremely hot and we did dither about whether to go or not, but it was only 10 minutes up the road and we kept the warm-ups nice and short and uh, our our little horse is actually quite fit and and he coped very well. So mum did one test, I did one test. We uh, took lots of iced water and threw it on ourselves and on the horse. So yeah, it was a a fun day all round if warm. And just talking about the hot weather, that sort of leads on to the first topic we want to talk about on the news side today which is traveling horses in the current temperatures and, and what to do if you get stuck in a traffic jam in warm weather um it's a bit of a nightmare scenario for horse owners lucy there's been a particular incident which has brought this to light hasn't it yes there has uh, last month Stuart Fawcett was traveling traveling home and he was only about 10 minutes from from home when he got stuck behind quite a nasty nasty sounding crash and the horse ended up being on the box for about eight hours Uh, so it sort of led to a bit of a look about what to do really if you do end up stuck in traffic or broken down or um, traveling horses in summer because can't imagine how stressful that must have been for everyone involved and thankfully the horse is all right and and but anything that we can do to help others in a situation like that has been sort of the focus of Eleanor's news story this week. Mm, as you say, it's a story Anna's been looking into, but she's not joining us today. So we've got uh, all, the, all, all the news on that story from you, Lucy. And obviously, we all have to think about whether it's sensible to travel and compete horses at the moment. And that will depend on your horse's fitness level and how far you're traveling and so on in your individual circumstances. Lucy, if you do decide to travel, what should you do before you set off? Um, well, there's a few things that you should do sort of any time and however far you're going. The advice we've got from British Source Society and Highways England here is that, you know, you can't plan for every scenario, but there are a few things you can do should you end up in one of those. So, you know, basic things just like keeping your breakdown numbers and policy numbers and tyre details to hand, as well as just packing extra supplies for you and your horse on, on the box of roughage and water. Uh, even if you are just going up the road and I can confirm it's the most horrible thing breaking down anyway but breaking down with the horse on board it's 
extremely stressful. And so if you have those things, you know you've got those things, it just makes life a little bit easier. So you know that you've got you know water to keep yourself and your horse hydrated and cooled down if, if, if needs be. And there's a few other tips as well, um, such as you know just things to think about as in checking traffic advice before leaving. Uh, Twitter's quite good for those as well. I'd also say personally, make sure your phone's charged or have a battery pack with you as well. And, you know, the last thing you want to be worrying about is thinking, gosh, my phone's on 10% <laughs> if you're trying to get hold of people. Definitely. And finally, if the worst does happen, you get stuck in a traffic jam, the weather's hot, you're starting to become concerned about your horse's welfare. What should you do? What's the advice in that situation? So Highways England have given us some good numbers in here to call. Um, so they've got the customer contact centre. But if you really are in an emergency situation, then do call the police. Uh, there's often quite a bit of confusion about whether horse box drivers can use a hard shoulder or not if, if they're stuck. And this is something that goes round and round on social media, particularly at this time of year. And it's important to know that that, that drivers may only do that if they're told to do so by police or highways authority officers. Mm, so it's Highways England if, you, if you're in Britain or Traffic Scotland, Traffic Wales, Traffic Ireland, depending on your location, if it's sort of a concerning but non-emergency situation, and then 999 if it really becomes an emergency. Lucy, thank you. It's really important that we all know what to do in that sort of situation, even though we hope we won't ever find ourselves in it. Becky, we're going to come over to you now. You have some positive news uh, as we keep following the return to sport as the lockdown eases. That's right. In Scotland, we got brilliant news last week that competitions can now resume, which I think we've all been patiently waiting for here. There are some strict protocols set out by the Scottish government. They've said we need to operate in bubbles with a maximum of five households and no more than 15 people in each. And these bubbles should not mix. Now, each governing body is setting out their own guidance around how exactly this is going to work for their disciplines. I did have a chat with British Show Jumping's Chief Executive Ian Graham and the, the approach they're taking to show jumping is having a bubble of five riders in the warm-up. Those five will then go into the competition arena individually and do their round. And once those five have finished, the next bubble of five will begin warming up. It does mean it's going to take some time to get through those riders. And of course, there will be a wait while the next five are given time to warm up. And British Dressage are looking at strict staggered times and BE have said riders are only allowed one rider and one helper per horse. No additional family members, friends or owners. Mm, so that's a little bit different to in England, isn't it? Because in England, for each horse at a British eventing competition, you can have the rider, a supporter and one owner or, or two if they're from the same household. So the restrictions on personnel are a little bit tighter there in Scotland. And that, that bubbling idea, a little bit different as well and something for, for organisers and governing bodies to work through, Becky. Absolutely. I think everyone's are being encouraged just to bear with the governing bodies and I think it is going to take a bit of fine tuning perhaps and I think it'll be interesting seeing it put in practice for each discipline but hopefully I think it's just positive to get the sport back up and running. Mm, and there's some some economic impact there as well as the, that uh, you know it's frustrating for Scottish venues and business owners to see Scottish riders leaving the country to compete. Exactly that's something Horse Scotland have really pushed the government on in the fact that these venues, you know, they are losing out. They do rely on riders coming to them. And yeah, when riders have been able to sort of go down south and head off and driving past these venues on the way, it has been very difficult for them. And what's happening in Wales? There's been a bit of a bit of easing there as well and some competition restarting. 
Yes, in Wales, Dressage is back up and running. They have held some BD and BD Quest competitions so far, and the restriction is 30 people allowed. And just yesterday came the announcement the use of indoor arenas will now be permitted, so that will allow um, more venues to host more dressage. No affiliated eventing or show jumping in Wales at the moment, though. No, so the British eventing fixtures in Wales were scheduled to run earlier in the year, so these were cancelled due to the lockdown and no other fixtures are currently planned. And in terms of show jumping, this is still on hold for the moment, owing to that restriction of 30 people and the financial viability issues this causes for some show jumping venues. There is hope over the time the government will increase this number, which we hope could allow sport to get back up and running there. Mm. And talking about numbers, on a bit of a sideways note to that, showing has been a tricky one to get back to competition. It doesn't have one governing body who's sort of taken overall overarching view of it. And there's also the factor of having several riders in the ring at once. But we are now seeing shows returning and the showing council has released a blueprint for organisers, which they want them to use alongside government guidance. What sort of thing is covered in that blueprint, Becky? This blueprint covers things like class sizes and the showing council is advising limits of 15 people per class except for working hunter. Other things include um, two metre social distancing in lineups, limits on the number of people attending so only the rider and two other people per horse. It's very much a guide really to help show secretaries and venues prepare their operational plans which of course will vary from venue to venue. Well, it's really great to see competitions managing to come back. And thanks for talking us through all that, Becky. It's also really good to see championships starting to come back. We've got a big report from the NAF Five Star British Show Jumping National Championships at Bolsworth in this week's Horse and Hat magazine. Uh, Just really fun and exciting to see championships returning, isn't it, Lucy? Oh, I agree. And it looked, I was reading Eleanor's reports from up there from from this week, and it just looks, I mean, Bowles was a spectacular venue anyway, and in the sunshine, it just looked fabulous up there. And and Pippa, tell us us a bit about who, who was on form up at the show. Yeah, Louise Saywell seems to have been very much the woman to beat. She took the national championship title with PLS Halo Diamond, who's only been back with her for six days after spending lockdown elsewhere. So that was quite an achievement. And she seems to be a bit of a specialist in sort of jumping on horses and getting them going quickly because she was also the joint puissance winner riding a horse she's only had for four weeks um, called Edgar Rento. So that was pretty impressive. But one of my favourite stories was about the grade C championship winner, uh, Chantal Duggan. She broke her neck last year in a freak accident when a young horse threw its head up caught her under the chin and knocked her out and it was thought of for a time that she might never walk again so pretty impressive to be back out jumping and winning with uh, with that sort of backstory that's amazing and it's so exciting to see sport returning and to see hear these stories again i've, I've really really missed them and especially when there are such brilliant brilliant r- achievements for people like like Chantal and Louise as well, it's it's fantastic. And there were a whole raft of different classes happening up there this week, weren't there, Pippa? Yeah, there was just a whole, as you say, a whole gamut from national horse age classes, rider age classes, pony classes. It was all going on. And I noticed there was quite a lot of homebred success in the horse age classes, which is, I think, is always a really nice story. Angel Tuff took the national seven-year-old championship on the homebred Righteous. The winter seven-year-old championship went to a lady called Lorraine Locke, who was riding a horse that was bred by her grandfather and out of a mare that he actually bought Lorraine, but who had an accident. So that was really lovely. And also success for the Billy star as well so homebred success in the age classes and, and and lots of young riders pony riders all getting out and and getting back to competition which is so great to see 
Oh, brilliant. No, it's brilliant to see. And now I'm looking forward to reading the full report in this, in this week's issue. Definitely looking forward to that too. Thank you both very much for joining me, Lucy and Becky. I will be talking to you both again soon, I'm sure. Goodbye. Bye, Pippa. Thanks. See ya. So now it's over to Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine, who has a difficult but essential subject for us this week. I'm going to tackle one of those topics that no one ever likes to talk about, and that's euthanasia. Being a vet, it's the one part of the job that you absolutely hate, um, but it's one part of your job that you know you've got to do. I probably on a weekly basis deal with euthanasias. And it's one of those things that you're very aware that clients are never prepared for. No one ever, ever wants to go down to a stable and then suddenly see their horse in pain and the horse has to be euthanized. But I think there are there are a lot of things that you need to do um, as responsible horse owners to make sure that everything is accounted for because one day it's going to happen to you, definitely. So... I have a a couple of bits of advice, really, that we kind of go through as vets when we arrive. We almost get it down to a T. We know the drill. We know how things are going to happen. But I think clients really need to know what to expect and what to do beforehand. So I've written a little list of of stuff because I think it's really important that if you're on a livery yard or wherever you are, you have within your livery agreement something to do with euthanasia. Invariably... When horses get injured, it could be out of hours and you may not be around. So the decision ultimately comes down to the owner of the animal um, to allow euthanasia, unless it's on welfare grounds, in which we can then intervene uh, under the Animal Welfare Act and utilising some guidelines that are set up by one of our governing bodies called the British Equine Veterinary Association. They have a very nice set of guidelines for euthanasia. So I'd always recommend that as part of your livery agreement, there is a section in there saying if in your absence, if euthanasia is the only option, who can give authorization for that? Because horses are still a form of property. We still require consent unless it is under welfare grounds, of which then we still ideally need to get consent from a police officer, actually, to to euthanize that animal if we don't have the consent for anyone else we can do it with several vets available if you're getting second opinions but it puts us in a bit of a sticky situation we would prefer people to have a written protocol for agreeing a euthanasia so those of you that have never seen a euthanasia before or don't know what kind of happens there's two main methods in which we can euthanize horses um The main one that a lot of people are very aware of is when your old-fashioned slaughterman or what they term knackerman comes out and the utilisation of a free bullet. Um, A lot of the licensed um, slaughter companies out there are very good at their jobs and there are a limited number of people who are licensed to do this. So if you are using one of them, I don't think you're going to have any issues. I would never advise an owner to be around for those types of euthanasia, to be honest. Um, The second one is um, the form of an injection. So a lethal injection, essentially it's a massive overdose of an anaesthetic. Given correctly, you do have some degree of control over the euthanasia itself. Don't be surprised if your vet wants to fit a catheter, so puts a very small tube into the vein to allow good access 
to the vein. The thing is, when you're ever doing an injection, you're very reliant upon the horse being pretty good with needles. Uh, if you've got a horse that isn't, is a little bit needle shy or a bit af afraid of people in general or, or strangers, trying to get a euthanasia done by injection is sometimes a little bit more tricky and traumatizing for both patient and and client. So a lot of vets, again, myself included, will probably sedate and that prior to a euthanasia. I try to warn owners when I'm doing this that there's a couple of things that the horse will commonly do that you can gauge how things are going to go. At this point, again, I think it's really important people know that a lot of horses take reflex gasps. They will twitch. They will take very, very big gulps of air and they will sometimes paddle with their legs. They are anaesthetized by that point as long as the injection is given correctly. So as things move on over the coming sort of 60, 90 seconds, those horses start to become a lot quieter and then obviously they're passed and then checking their heart to make sure that they have actually gone. But I think it's important for owners to be aware that this whole process, it literally only takes a couple of minutes. It doesn't take very long and they're very unaware of that. So it's having your decision-making process. Do you want it done by injection or do you want it done by a free bullet? There are a few things that are also important to consider prior to euthanasia. Um, in the back of your passports, everyone's got them or should have them. If you look in the back of them, under section 9, there's a thing where it discloses whether the horse can be in or out of a food chain. Still under uh, present under UK and EU law, horses are still classed as food producing animals, so they need to be signed out of the food chain. Now, there are there are still horses that do go into the food chain within the UK. Um, those obviously that have been given the injection cannot do that. So you need to check in the back of your passport if you are intending for your horse to go into the food chain that that is signed and they have not had any medication that precludes them from going into it. Another thing is insurance. It's one of those minefields. If it comes to catastrophic injuries, the British Equine Veterinary Association or BEVA sets out a set of guidelines, what we call schedule guidelines, which let us know whether it is liable for an insurance um, or for us to euthanize an animal under welfare grounds and then that probably will allow an insurance payout for that animal. It's really important there aren't many conditions in which we can euthanize an animal that will pay out on the insurance. It is all down to your own individual terms and conditions and almost your responsibility to check that first. If your horse has a condition in which it is suffering in pain and we are unable to control that pain or prevent that suffering, it's important that you contact your insurance company first before doing the euthanasia to get pre-authorization. And it may also require a post-mortem to be done. So these are all the things that you need to consider before the euthanasia. If you do the euthanasia and then contact them, there is the potential that insurance companies will not be able to pay out on your, on your claim, on your, on your policy. But again, it is important that you check that out first. So under, under what we call um, Schedule 1 or the, or the Beaver Guidelines, a horse essentially has to have a catastrophic injury that is irreparable and is in insufferable pain. But if you have one of these that is a bit of a question mark, is a bit of a grey area, your vet actually may say, well, I'm going to hold off the euthanasia immediately and get a second opinion. Whether that requires getting a senior partner or someone to come out and give a second opinion that same day, that may be required before you can do the euthanasia if you are looking to go through an insurance claim. So it's 
quite complicated euthanasia and it's one of those things that no one ever thinks about until it's too late or they they have to make that decision there and then so definitely suggest get it down into delivery agreements consider what you'd like to do consider whether you'd like ashes back and things like that it's an incredibly traumatic time for owner if you have all that information already pre-assigned and on your yard it makes everyone's life a lot easier then you're comfortable with what is happening so euthanasia it's a tricky one but please do consider it well before you ever need to go down that road thank you ricky really important advice there although it's a distressing thing to have to think about ricky will be back next week with advice on degenerative joint disease and arthritis We'll also catch up with all the news from the rescheduled Winter Dressage Championships and our guest is show rider turned Grand Prix Dressage competitor Louise Bell. Don't forget that if you would like to listen to our weekly podcast on Thursday, 24 hours before it goes on public release, you can do so by joining our Horse and Hound Plus service. To find out more about the benefits of becoming a Horse and Hound Plus member, visit horseandhound.co.uk forward slash plus. Meanwhile, Don't forget to rate, review and share the podcast. And thank you for listening today. We'll be back next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.